I invite you to make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and we'll begin reading here in just a moment, in verse 28, the message entitled, The Glory of Jesus. Jesus has just told his disciples that he would suffer and be killed and be raised to life, and then he set forth what it means to be a disciple. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, then he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Jesus. After those words on discipleship, Jesus told them that there were some who were standing there who would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom of God. They were about to experience something that was supernatural, and Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him to get away and pray. And we pick up reading in verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease or his departure, his exodus, literally, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Luke is concerned with revealing the identity of Jesus. And what is in view before us today in this passage is what we refer to as the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Jesus with its prediction of glory, I think is a natural follow-up to the previous passage about suffering, bringing to light the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. None of the Gospels record the specific site of the transfiguration, but Mount Tabor in southern Galilee or Mount Hermon near Caesarea Philippi are traditional sites. I find it interesting in the Bible, mountains are often the place of God's revelation. I believe that God loves mountains. There are multiple references to mountains throughout the scripture, and there's often an encounter with God that goes along with them. And what is at the heart of this passage is the glory of God as it is revealed in the person and the work of Jesus. What is the glory of God? Well, the dictionary defines glory as praise, splendor, or honor. So in one sense, the glory of God would refer to the splendor that emanates from him. But more specifically, the glory of God, I believe, is the magnificence of his holiness. 
manifested for people to see and to experience. Let me say that again. I believe that the glory of God is the magnificence of his holiness that is manifested for people to see and to experience. We first find uh, the glory of God in the Old Testament in the proclamation of the Shekinah glory of God. You remember when Israel left Egypt and they were headed for the Red Sea? The Bible says that by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And at night there was a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel day or night. God manifested himself to the people to show them that he was with them and also to light the way. So in that regard, the holiness of God as manifested among his people, presenting to us the glory of God, shows us the way now and eternally. In Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. It was one angel who cried out to another in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So time and again in the Bible, we find the connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God. Now, Jesus was preparing to give himself to suffer and to die and to be raised in glory. He's preparing his disciples for the pathway of the cross and also for the future glory that he would secure for all who have faith in him. And I believe if we want to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Jesus, if we want to be faithful disciples of Jesus, then we need to have a clear understanding of the glory of Jesus. Because it's our understanding of Jesus, it's how we look to Jesus, it's how we follow Jesus that really defines what type of disciple we will be. So I want to show you in these few moments that we have together uh, several truths about the glory of Jesus that I think will give us uh, a better biblical understanding of who he is, what he's done, and what he will still do. And the first truth is this, the glory of Jesus is a presentation of of the perfection of his humanity and his deity. It is a bringing together of our understanding in a presentation of his absolute, complete perfection. Now, the Bible says that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. Now, why would Jesus need to pray? Was this not God in the flesh? Was this not the Son of God who was here in the midst of these people? Why would Jesus need to pray? Well, Jesus willingly came to earth. He took on human flesh. He was without sin. But the one thing that he did in his life and his ministry on this earth was that he communed with the triune God, and he gave us an example of what absolute dependence on the will of God the Father looks like. This is very important for us. Because it's insight into the fellowship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have had for all of eternity. What it means to live in absolute surrender to and dependence on God the Father in our lives. And what it means to pray. You see, in the incarnation, the glory of Jesus was veiled in a sense. 
It was veiled only because he voluntarily took on the form of a servant. It was veiled only because he was coming to be obedient in his death on a cross and humanity could not fully experience the glory of God in his presence and live. And yet Jesus was about to pull the curtain back in a sense and show them just a little bit about his eternal glory. So while he was praying independence on the Father, his glory shone through. Now understand that Jesus shared that glory with the Father as the second person of the Trinity, as God the Son from eternity past. Listen to what he prays in John 17 and verse 4 and 5. I have glorified you on the earth. This is the Son speaking to the Father. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So this was not an acquired glory. This was an eternal glory. And it's also interesting that when Jesus is on display, there is often a connection between his humanity and his glory. We see that many times in the scripture. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, the commentator, put it this way. He said, it has been observed that by the side of every humiliation connected with the humanity of the Messiah, the glory of his divinity was also made to shine forth. The coincidences are manifestly undesigned on the part of the evangelic writers, and hence they are all the more striking. Listen to what what he says here. Thus, if he was born of the humble maiden of Nazareth, an angel announced his birth. If the infant Savior was cradled in a manger, the shining host of heaven hymned his advent. And so afterwards, if he hungered and was tempted in the wilderness, angels ministered to him, even as the angel strengthened him in the agony of the garden. If he submitted to baptism, the voice and vision from heaven attested his sonship. If enemies threatened, he could miraculously pass through them. If he was nailed to the cross, the sun craped his brightness and the earth quaked. And if he was laid in the tomb, angels kept its watches and heralded his rising. Throughout the scripture, there's this presentation of both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus and the glory that he possesses in his person eternally. So as Jesus prayed, He was transformed before the disciples. Now what started as a mountaintop prayer meeting turned into a shining forth of glory of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that his robe became white and glistening. The idea is like the flashing of lightning. They were in the presence of the brilliance of the radiance of light that was coming forth from Jesus. Matthew and Mark used the phrase specifically, and he was transfigured before them. Now the word transfigured refers to a transformation. It's not just a slight alteration of outward appearance. The verb metamorpho means to transfigure or to transform or to change in form. So it is something that would be outwardly visible, kind of like a caterpillar's metamorphosis, turning a slug-looking thing into a beautiful butterfly. Jesus was physically and mysteriously transformed. Now, I think what this is is a picture of Christ in the kingdom of God, but it's also a picture of the transformation that we experience in Christ. 
It's what we have to look forward to. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, but we are all being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Matthew's gospel says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. One preacher put it this way. He said, for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface that one time in his earthly life. And this was both a glance back into his pre-human glory and a look forward into his future glory. The glory of Jesus is a presentation of the perfection of his humanity and deity. The second truth is this. The glory of Jesus is a presentation of his complete fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It was no accident the way this came together. God the Father had orchestrated it. And the, those who were present were symbolic of what was taking place. Verse 30 says, And behold, two men talked with him. And these men are identified as Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and they spoke of his uh, death or his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, why is Moses significant? He's significant because he represents the law. Moses was the representative of God, delivering the law of God to the people. Now, remember, the law was never intended to save. In fact, the law could not save because people couldn't perfectly keep it. The law was intended to point to the glory of God, to his holiness, to the need of the people for a redeemer, and that only by the grace of God through faith could anybody be saved. Exodus 34 tells of Moses going up again on a mountain, on the mountain called Sinai, to receive the law from God. You remember that he went up to the top of the mountain and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him. And the Bible says in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, Exodus 34, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And the Bible says that Moses in that moment bowed before the Lord and worshiped. Moses represents the law, but Elijah represents the prophets. Now I believe that Moses is one of the most, or Elijah rather, is one of the most interesting characters in all the Bible. There's so many fascinating stories of how God uh, worked in his life and worked through him. And God used him at a particularly important time in the history of Israel to bring about revival. You remember that he opposed the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Uh, Elijah experienced many ups and downs and victories and defeats. Elijah is connected to John the Baptist in the New Testament because John the Baptist says the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ was marked by the power and the spirit of Elijah as he came in fulfillment of prophecy. Elijah is also connected with the coming of the Messiah. So what were they discussing in this conversation 
that they were having. Well, I've already referenced it, but they were discussing the departure of Jesus. The word literally means exodus, and the language implies that they were not just having a passing conversation, but it's almost like there was a pause in time in this supernatural moment as Jesus and Moses and Elijah are there in the transfiguration, and they're having an extended conversation, Moses and Elijah are, about the finished work of Jesus. And that conversation was all focused on Jesus. Now, both Moses and Elijah had unique departures from the earth. You remember Moses died on Mount Nebo and, and, and God buried him. Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire without dying. But here they were, time removed, and they're discussing Jesus. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in verse 17? Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So the very idea that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all there together is symbolic of what Jesus was going to finalize at the cross and be victorious in at the resurrection. Moses and Elijah are speaking of everything that the life of Jesus represents, the fulfillment of the law, the realization of the prophecy. And here he is presenting himself in his glory to his disciples. And that brings me to the third truth. The glory of Jesus is a presentation of his sovereign purpose in being sent by God the Father. Now there's some important voices that have taken place here. It's important, whatever Moses and Elijah were saying and the significance of it. It's important, the prayer that Jesus had prayed. But now the voice of God the Father is going to come down to God the Son. And what he says takes place in an absolutely amazing moment. Shrouded in glorious light, Jesus is talking to Moses. Moses, remember, he's been dead now for some 1,400 years at this point. He's talking to Elijah, who has been dead for some 900 years. They're speaking about what Jesus came to accomplish. The three disciples have been weighed down by sleep, but now they're beginning to perk up, and Peter acts as their spokesman. Now, sometimes Peter takes flack because he sometimes seems to speak before he thinks, but we have to at least give him credit uh, for interacting in the moment. He was in awe of what was going on here, and he did not want this moment to end. And he says, Master, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then there's this commentary right behind that that says, not knowing what he said. His response is reminiscent of the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles was a celebration of God's provision of his people uh, during their journey in the wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, is the seventh and last feast that the Lord commanded Israel to participate in. It was one of three feasts that they were to participate in each year. It was instituted by God as a way of reminding the Israelites in every generation of their deliverance by God from Egypt. And Peter did not know what he was saying. And I think what that tells us is that he was, in one aspect, putting Jesus, Moses, and Elijah 
in the same category. And listen, our Lord stands alone. There is none who is in his category. Peter, thinking that he's speaking respectfully in the positive side of his comments, it is absolutely good that we would be in the presence of the Lord. Yes, it is good to be in the presence of the glorified Christ. But then the scripture says in verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then verse 36, when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. Peter was saying something. He didn't know what he was saying. So God the Father corrects him. I mean, can you imagine in that moment? You're there, and you've already had this miraculous experience, and, and you've been in a slumber, and time has passed, and then you wake up, and Moses and Elijah are standing there, and Jesus is standing there, and Jesus is in his glory. You say something that you think is worshipful, then God the Father comes down in his voice, and he makes the correction. Speaking of the uniqueness of his son and the divine approval of what his son was about to do. God's presence is noted by the reference to the cloud three times, which was a symbol of divine presence and by the voice from the cloud. The divine presence enveloped the, the apostles radiating his power and his glory. And the word of God underscored who Jesus is. He says, this is my beloved son, meaning that Jesus is the one whom the father sovereignly chose to fulfill his eternal purpose of redemption. This is the same message that had come at his baptism. When God the father identified Jesus the son as the Messiah, as the one who was the suffering servant, God the father referred to Psalm 2 and also Isaiah 42 in part. And he says, this is my beloved son. You know what God the Father was saying? This is God incarnate. And the triune Godhead is well pleased with the Lord Jesus Christ. God always has been and will always be well pleased with his dear son, who is none other than the God-man who came to accomplish the redemptive purposes of God. Listen to the way the Bible puts it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 and following. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Then he says this in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do not miss this point. Not only did God authenticate the identity of Jesus the Son, but he drew attention to the words of Jesus that are to be listened to and obeyed. He's saying, in a sense, hear the doctrine of Jesus. Obey the commandments of his word. 
follow the example of his life. Walk in the path of discipleship. And when the cloud lifted, Moses and Elijah were gone and Jesus was there by himself. God the Father authenticating his identity, his message, and the purpose for which he had come. And I think the fact that Moses and Elijah were gone and the Lord Jesus stood alone is a vivid declaration about the exclusivity of Jesus. The disciples remained silent in that moment because the time for the public display of the glory of Jesus would come, but it had not yet come. And Peter and John and James would hold on to this experience, certainly for the rest of their lives, and take it into eternity with them. In fact, Peter referenced it in 2 Peter chapter 1. John later referenced it in John chapter 1 of how they had seen and beheld his glory. And I want to come toward a close of this message with this thought. The glory of Jesus is experienced in his presence. The glory of Jesus is experienced in his presence. It's not enough just to know about it. It's not enough just to read the passage. It's not enough just to affirm the truth. But the glory of Jesus is experienced in his presence. And the way that we experience the presence of Jesus is through repentance and faith. And when we repent of our sins and in faith turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are reconciled to God through the one and only mediator. And today as we come to this time of celebrating the Lord's Supper and the body and the blood of Jesus, we are reminded of the fact that there is access to God. There's no way that we could get to God on our own. Good works couldn't take us to God. There's nothing in us that would be worthy of uh, permitting us to come into the presence of God. But it's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that not only can we come into the presence of God, but we can come boldly. And he receives us as his children. And this transfiguration of Jesus gives us a preview of the victorious Savior who has come in again in power and in glory. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 5 and 6, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have both the privilege of knowing Jesus and his glory in his presence and the responsibility to proclaim Jesus and his glory so that others can come into his presence. And friends, this is what the gospel is all about. It's about the reconciling love of God through his only son. That God sent his only son to live and to die and to now live again that we might have everlasting life and know God in a personal way. I wonder today, do you know God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus by faith? If you have, we invite you to participate in just a moment as we pray in the Lord's Supper. Because the bread and the cup represent what Christ has done for you. But if you don't know him today, it'd be a wonderful time to enter into the family of God by faith. 
The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's a promise of Scripture. We all come by the way of the cross through faith in Jesus. I'm going to ask Todd Morgan to come at this time. Uh, Todd serves as one of our deacons, and he's going to come and uh, prayerfully uh, prepare us for participating in the cup and the bread. So I'd ask if you would just bow your heads together with us for a moment as we pray. And you take a moment to go to the Lord and ask Him uh, to bless you and to work in your life that you might experience His glory. And if you don't know Him, now would be a good time to pray a prayer of repentance. And to say, Lord Jesus, I need you. And I'm coming to you today to trust you, to be saved. I want to be your, I want to be your child, God. I want to know you. Todd, if you will, pray with us. Father, we come before you today and we, we just lift up praises to you with the songs that were, were played earlier and the, the message brought today and now the partaking of the Lord's Supper that we just ask that it, it pleases you, Lord, that we bring glory and, and honor to you because you are worthy and you're the only one worthy, Lord, of our praise. Because you are holy, holy, holy. Father, daily we, we don't live up to your standard and we, and we fall. And we're just so thankful that you provided a way for us to be part of your family through your grace and your mercy and sending your son, Lord Jesus, to this earth do the ultimate sacrifice for us. We're just thankful for that, Lord, and, and just continue to guide us and send the Holy Spirit to us to show us those things in our lives that separate us from you and, and take us away from becoming more like Jesus, that, that yet that we are in the flesh, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus, and we can become more like him as we go through our lives. And Father, we just lift up the bread and the, and the cup to you, the bread being the, the symbol of the, Jesus' broken body. And we're thankful for that, that he voluntarily came and sacrificed himself in a way that we can only imagine what he went through from a human perspective, but ultimately had to be done for our for our salvation, Lord, and we're thankful for that. And also the the cup, which represents Jesus' blood that was spilled so that our sins could be forgiven and just wash away the sin from our lives. We just ask that you be with us as we go through our lives and find those things that are, that are sinful and, and, and push them away. As we partake of this Lord's Supper, we just ask that it bring glory to you, Lord. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll give you just a moment. Uh, you'll notice on the cup that the bread is on top. And uh, you'll want to remove the top part uh, so that you can access the bread. Give everybody a moment to do that.
in remembrance of Jesus, who is the bread of life, I invite you to take and eat the bread. the Bible says that without the shedding of blood there is no remission for sin walk and wash away our sins nothing but the blood of Jesus take and drink Jesus we honor you today we thank you for the word which has given us insight into a truly miraculous and spiritual moment in the presence of your disciples. But it's also given us an anticipation of what is still to come as we partake in of the bread and the cup. Remind us of the marriage supper of the Lamb of which we'll partake in your presence in heaven. We long for your return. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We anticipate the fullness of your glory. We can't really even humanly imagine what all that means, but Father, I know that we'll gather around your throne and bring praise and glory to the Lamb because he's worthy. He was the one who was slain for our sins. So help us to live in light of who you are and to take seriously the responsibility and the privilege we have to make Jesus known. And I pray that we would do it joyfully. We'd not allow the, uh, the distractions of life uh, to keep us from faithfully proclaiming him, but it would be front and center in all that we do as we honor and lift up the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.